The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Mysterious purple spheres found all over the world. And a book that caused the Soviet Union to purge authors is now available on Amazon. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Welcome back to Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you're having a lot of fun this week. A lot of cool things going on, I'm sure. I don't know, I'm pre-recording this episode, so I'm assuming the world is still around. Get ready for my vacation, looking forward to that. I'm going to have a lot of fun, going to have some rest. I'll still be doing research, we'll still be recording stuff. We'll see what the recording schedule goes, I can't really say for now. But we may, we may end up taking a week off the show, just to give you a heads up. I don't want to, but you know, I, I gotta, I gotta recharge. We're also going to be going into season two soon. It's pretty much going to be the same. I might fiddle with the intro a bit, but uh, we'll see where that goes. We'll see where that goes. So there's this game I like to play. It's kind of a mind game with myself. Something I do when I'm bored and I'm out in public. I made up this game called Amnesia, and it's pretty stupid, but <laughs> I have fun doing it. Where what I'll do is I'll walk around. A, I'll basically establish a time period of when I got Amnesia. So generally, it's around like 2000, 2001, something around there. I'll have amnesia, and then I'll walk through the movie department, and I'll be like, whoa, wait, what? What? What's Spider-Man Homecoming? What's this? There's a, there's, are you telling me there's a live-action Spider-Man movie now? And then I'll think someone will say, dude, there's like five Spider-Man movies right now. What? No way! Five Spider-Man movies? What's this? Transformers The Age of Extinction? What? Is this, is this real? Yeah, dude, that's like Transformers 4. What? I know, it's a stupid game. <laughs> it's a stupid game, but for whatever reason, I like playing it. I like walking around the movie section and not knowing those movies existed. There's something about watching a movie for the first time that you only get, like, a single time, obviously. Like, you can say the first time you saw... There's movies that you watch and you're like, how, how did I not watch this movie decades ago? And it's harder to appreciate with new movies when you go see Infinity War. You're like, whoa, I saw that opening night. That was great. But like, I saw Alien for the first time maybe five years ago. And I was just completely blown away. I saw Return of the Dead, which is one of my favorite movies. I think it's probably one of the best zombie movies. It's at least, it's tied with the Dawn of the Dead remake. But Return of the Living Dead, I saw for the first time maybe in like 2004. And it's crazy how well those movies hold up. Like, I love that movie, and I have, like, an Onita Medical Supply shirt. I mean, I really love that movie. I love the way it looks. I love the storyline. I I knew of it as a kid, but it looked too scary to watch. And so it's not the nostalgia factor. It is this great movie that is just timeless. And the same thing with Alien. Like, it was too scary for me to watch as a kid. It came out when I was an infant, but... Even when I was, like, growing up, I was like, no, you know, I'll watch Aliens. That that looks, you know, that's action-packed. But 
Alien's creepy. Alien looks too scary for me. And the, the thing is, is like that movie also holds up so well that you can watch it for the very first time in 2012 and be like, this is an amazing movie. This this is one of the best horror movies I've ever seen. The the thing the one issue I have with Alien is that when you watch it now, it may be different because all the prequels to Prometheus and all that stuff. But when you watch the first Alien now, you know Ripley doesn't die. So the whole last half hour with her running through the ship, you're kind of like, well, I, you know, she's in four other movies, so I know she doesn't die. So that last act, it falls a little flat because I know she goes on to do sequels. But it's still really intense. Um, you know, the ending still is really good. It just doesn't have that suspense to it. She died in the original version. The alien, in the original draft, the alien eats her head and then picks up the radio and says, I'm coming back to Earth, in her voice. And I'm really glad they cut that out. One thing I'm glad, one thing I wish they hadn't cut out, one of my fears is turning into something else, like morphing into a tree or morphing into like uh, like a raccoon or something like that. It's this weird fear I have. I mean, it's completely irrational. But in the original, in the director's cut of Alien, or in the deleted scenes, I guess I should say, we find out that the eggs that the facehuggers come out of are actually humans or other life forms that melt into an egg. And they're basically the facehugger. That's the life cycle. An alien, just a standard foot trooper alien grabs you, does something to you and melt, you melt and you turn into an egg. And then you just sit there dormant for a thousand years until someone opens you up. That would have been a hundred times more terrifying than like a queen alien laying eggs. The idea that those hundreds and hundreds of eggs we saw in the first alien, to think that that was a, all of those were previous alien people and they all melted into these eggs and the alien put them there. That's far more alien to me than basically in the second one, the aliens became like insectoids. And they had like a queen who laid eggs and stuff like that. In the deleted scene, Dallas, who is the captain of the ship, is melting into a lay into an egg, into a leg. He's melting into an egg and he's begging Ripley. He's like, kill me, kill me. And you would just watch him like slowly melt. And you see another crew member who was taken at the very beginning. He's like almost all egg and she flamethrowers him. That's way more terrifying. And again, way more alien. Making them insectoids is something that's relatable to on Earth. But so, Ridley Scott, you should have went with your original vision. Let's go ahead and start the show. You know, so we're going to look at two stories today like we normally do. Actually, I want to make a quick note. So, a couple episodes back, I was talking about sugar babies and sugar daddies. And salt daddies. And when I was doing that, of course, I was looking up the history of the sugar babies and the sugar daddy and the sugar mama, there used to be a sugar mama candy. These are all candy. Sugar babies are the little brown caramel things. The sugar daddy was like a caramel bar, like a caramel popsicle. The sugar daddy was originally called the Papa Suck. The Papa Suck. So good good name change. Whoever Whoever said, hey, let's not call this Papa Suck because that just sounds creepy let's rename it to sugar daddy so good on them i just wanted to include that piece of trivia i kept trying to figure out a way to fit that into an episode so i'm just cramming it in here so we're going to talk about two stories today they're both fairly interesting one has been resolved 
and one, they just, I've looked all over for a rational answer to this, like a confirmation of a rational answer. We haven't gotten it. We're going to go ahead and start with the one that's been resolved. And what we're going to look at today comes from the conspiracy list that we look at all the time, the iceberg conspiracy list. On that list, there is listed something called the black book. Now, that's a very generic term. And, you know, you're not really going to pull up anything for that. But I was pointed in the right direction by somebody. What it is in reference to is the Black Book of Soviet Jewry. J-E-W-R-Y, like Jews. So the Big Black Book of Soviet Jewry is an interesting book on multiple levels. One, it's in the, the what it is is interesting. And then two, the... The path it took to being published is interesting as well. So what it is was that during the Soviet Union, during World War II, I guess I should say, in the Soviet Union, the war was going on and the Soviet Union got a couple Jewish authors and they go, we want to know what the Germans are doing to the Jewish populations of what's going on. We want to have an account of what is going on in Germany as we're moving through. We want you to interview survivors at camps because the, the governments knew about the camps we want to find out what they were doing so the jewish authors were like oh that's great and the, the soviet union had had a reasoning for this they wanted to use it as a propaganda tool so they could enlist they could help get allies and say look at we're fighting for these poor jewish people as well like they're trying to get the western jews to say we need to have stalin as a good ally he's on our side so these jewish authors begin Asking soldiers to send accounts, ask to gather any documents out of the camps, any documents that they find, and send them over to them. And they were going out, not necessarily to the front lines, but they were going out after these battles and and collecting these documents of what was going on. And, you know, they got, like, diary, they got a lot of diaries, they found, like, poetry written on cigarette paper in these camps. They're getting first-hand accounts from soldiers, from survivors. And they're compiling all this information, and they're like, oh, this man, this is really bad. We really got messed up over here. Germany was really giving it to the Jews. And what happened was they eventually compiled most of it. And when they came back and they gave it to the Soviet government, they looked at it and go, mm, no, no, that's not really what we're looking for. And the problem was was that because as the, Rus as the Germans moved west... Or East, sorry. This is not going to be another Leningrad mistake. As the Germans were moving East, and they're taking over areas, you would have people in those areas say, oh yeah, no, we'll help you take on these Jews. We don't like them either. So you had some of the reports implicating now Soviet members, members of the Soviet Union, as Soviet Union was now moving West, taking over territory, some of the accounts made those people look bad. The other thing was that the Soviet Union didn't like that the book showed that the Jewish people were getting treated worse by the Germans than Russians or Ukrainians or Romanians or anything like that. They felt like the book heightened their pain over the others, which, you know, makes sense for multiple reasons why it would specialize that, the least of the reasons being that that was kind of the impetus of the book and the authors were Jewish. What happened was the Soviet Union, during this time period, we're in like the late... 40s, early 50s, they begin purging, doing their own purge of quote-unquote cosmopolitans, which was their code word for Jewish people. And a lot of people who worked on this anti-fascist committee who was putting this book together were getting purged out. The main author was kind of traveling the world 
he he wasn't part of that, but he constantly feared whenever he went back home that he was going to get arrested, he was going to get purged. What's really interesting about it was that at one point, so the Soviet Union at this point is not interested in it. And the the notes, the book was actually like compiled and ready to print. And they're like, no, we don't want it. So the book starts moving around. All the notes start moving around from this place to that place. They end up in a museum. They come back. They're, they're getting damaged. They're getting worn out. They become illegible. So a lot of the work they put into this stuff, these documents that they got, started to decay because they're moving around so much. Some people are like, you know, they don't want the Soviets to destroy them, so they move them here, they move them there. At one point, they sent them all to Jerusalem, to newly uh, founded Jerusalem. And the publishers in Jerusalem looked at it and they go, uh, you know, this book really has a lot of stories about how great Stalin is. Because the author was, was a big fan of Stalin, even though he was afraid of being purged. They're looking at the book and they go, well, you know, there's a bunch of stuff in here about what a great guy Stalin is. There's a bunch of stuff in here about how non-Jews are helping Jews. And they're like, this this isn't for us either. It's, it's not specific enough about the Jewish plight during that time. It has all this other Soviet Union propaganda in it. And so at this point, the author is between a rock and a hard space because he's put all this research into it. He doesn't know what to do with it. Nobody wants to publish it. At one point, he did have some publishers come to him and say, we want to publish it in English and French and German and all this stuff. And the author goes, are you going to publish it in Russian? And they said, no, we're not going to publish it in Russian. So he refused to release the files. He felt that this book needed to be read it, read needed to be read it, needed to be read in Russia. He said it was very important to the Soviet Union. It's a it's a collection of these stories. It's a collection of these accounts that, you know, anyone who's looked into the Holocaust has heard before. Not not necessarily verbatim, but the same style. There was one story that was just sad. I mean, they're all fairly sad, obviously. But I thought this one and just it you know, What's interesting about the book is because it's a collection of writings, some are more literate than others. Some are children's diaries, and some are written by professional authors who went out and investigated these things. So you'd have a poem next to a journalist account of a survivor. I did come across this one. I thought it was interesting. So you had a mother who had to hide her husband in the basement, in the cellar. So it wasn't like a basement. And it was so cramped, he couldn't stand up. He's underneath there. And he was down there for two years. He like, you had to move the stove aside and he would pop up. His kids didn't even know he was down there because they were afraid that the kids would say something. And she kept him down there. And at one point, she got sick with typhus. The mother got sick with typhus. So she went, she was taken to the hospital. The kids were taken to the neighbor. And at night, this guy who had been in this basement all this time, there was no food there because the people who would normally bring the food in are gone. He began eating wallpaper. That's something that happened in a lot of siege situations. The glue behind the paper can actually has some sort of sustenance. They were doing that in Leningrad as well. They're eating the wallpaper. They're eating their shoes because shoes used to be made of leather. You can like cook a stew out of the glue from the wallpaper. And he would crawl back down there during the day. And again, it was so small, he couldn't lay down. He couldn't stand up. He was just crunched over. And what happened was in September of 1943, the Red Army showed up um, outside the town that he was in. And the Germans put up a strong fight in this town. And at one point, armed Germans were like right outside the house, loading their guns, shooting, taking fire and stuff like that. And he's in the house and the battle's going on. 
And when the woman finally gets out of the hospital, well, she got out of the hospital and she took her kids and like everyone else, they kind of fled into the forest to stay away from the battle. And when she came back to her village, she came back to her house. The house is burned down. And she goes to, oh, you know, get, go through the ashes. And he was still in the basement. He had suffocated. And he died two days before the town was liberated by the Soviets. So it's just one of the accounts that was a an account that a journalist, a Soviet Union journalist, got from these front lines of this fighting. Just, you know, again, just another horrible event that happens in war. So at this point, this book, as complete as it can be, generally it's called the Complete Black Book of Soviet Jewry or Russian Jewry. It is available on Amazon. You can pick it up. I actually kind of scrolled through it. It was a little bit too too dense for me to get into to get into the podcast you know basically to fit into 20 minutes but i was looking through it and it, it is those first-hand accounts and a lot of the accounts come from this um the death camps that were on the soviet side on lighter news this is a story i've been looking at for for honestly probably about two or three weeks it's been a story that i've been bumping up episodes because i can't find the information that i want on it this is also from the conspiracy list so you're you're getting a double header today Today's episode, I mean, today's story is about purple spheres. Now, what purple spheres are is there's these little purple jellies that have appeared in random places around the world. Now, not I, that might be overselling it. In a few gardens and in the middle of the desert, they'll find these piles of these little jelly spheres. And there have been a couple news reports in Arizona because there's just like this pile of it sitting out in the quote-unquote middle of nowhere. I don't know how far it is off the road, but it can't really be in the middle of nowhere if a news crew keeps driving up there. And there was also a garden in Britain that found these spheres. Now, the guy in Britain says that he looked up and the sky turned yellow and then blue, and then this gallop of gel fell on his fell on his front lawn in the desert. They're, they don't know where they came from. They're just like, here's a bunch of gels. So at first I'm like, okay, you know, the first thing was somebody just dropped off some like little Orbeez or it's a hydrating um, little ball that you use for plants. You put them in plants and they slowly release water. The problem is, is that a lot of these stories are from like 2012. The British story definitely is from 2012. The Arizona story is farther back. And what this is the way it'll normally work. They'll have a report on the initial incident where we found these jellies. They'll have the report on the initial incident saying, we found these jellies, and we don't know what they are. And then you'll get a follow-up article, and they'll send them to a lab, and the lab will go, well, it's not, we know what it's not. It's not a living matter. It's not any sort of egg. But we're going to send it in for chemical testing. And then there's never a follow-up story. It's really bizarre. And generally, like I said, I go into these conspiracies believing them, so generally I'll go to sites that prove the stuff or talk about the stuff as if it's real, if it's like alien eggs or some sort of bioweapon or some sort of like life form that we don't know of. And then I will go and I'll type in, I'll type in purple spheres debunked. And even the debunking sites are like, yeah, yeah, they're fake. They're just these Orbeez probably. But they, they never have anything either. And all of the articles that go, we sent them off to testing. I, I, I mean, it's been six, seven years since the ones in Britain were sent to testing, and we never, I can't find any analysis of the testing coming back and say, oh yeah, they're total, totally fake. Even when they send off Bigfoot fur, you'll generally get the article saying it's Bigfoot fur. Then you'll find another article where they're like, we tested it, 
or we're sending it to testing, and then you'll get a third article saying it's wolf hair. But all of these articles end just with going, oh, we're, we know what it's not. It's not eggs. We're sending them off to testing. An interesting thing is some people think that they're falling out of airplanes or falling from the sky, but they are always in like a clump on the ground. And generally when things fall from the sky, obviously, they have a scattering effect. If an object is moving, it's not going to drop it in one clump. And looking at the photo of the one in Arizona, which is, you know, the video footage, it is just one clump. It honestly looks like a car pulled up and they threw a bunch of stuff out into the middle of the desert. So that's my first inclination. And the thing is, is you look down and you go, oh no, it's alien eggs, when it could be a bunch of Orbeez, which is like a child's toy, or it could be, you know, the water plant stuff. If I was driving down the street and I found a packet of empty Doritos on the ground, I'm not going to think, whoa, aliens dropped this here. I'm going to go, oh, someone probably threw it outside of their car. It's because these things don't look normal. We think it's something abnormal. But on the flip side, if you had never seen a Doritos bag before, you had no idea what they were, that's sad because they're delicious, and you found them, you would send them a testing and they would go, dude, it's a Doritos bag. Like, they would get back to you. So I don't know why these stories keep hitting with a dead end. If you know anything else about these purple spheres, if you know anything I don't know, you know, definitely let me know. But at this point, I I, I, I think they probably are some sort of just over-the-counter product just because of where they're found and how they're just looks like someone just dumped them there. But again, I think it's weird that we're never getting any conclusive states. It would be something that somebody should say, oh, you know, those are Orbeez. Like, I work for Orbeez. We had the person who wrote, the, the niece of the person who wrote Bernstein Bears come out and say, the Mandela effect isn't real. Like, these people can interact with the media when these stories come up. So why no one from a company has said, that's not fake, that's ours, we can show you exactly what they are. But the stories just all kind of disappear until the next batch is found. So I'm putting this in the still weird category. Like I said, I've been researching this story a lot, and I was really hoping to find something else, and nothing's popping up. So we're putting purple spheres in, in most likely some sort of just dump. Some human just dumps stuff out of their car, but this this might be something more than that. Until we get more information, it's in the up-in-the-air category. But I'll let you know if I find anything else, and if you find anything else, hit me up. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbit. Oh, oh, I do want to say this. In the video for the Arizona, Arizona report story, the reporter's so hot, dude. Not like the reporter is okay. The report, I shouldn't say the reporter is okay looking. The reporter on the ground is attractive, but the like the anchor woman, oh, dude, she's super hot. I think, if anything, that was the best part about researching that story. She looked like one of those, like, no-nonsense ex-cheerleader blondes. She's really hot. Okay, anyways, facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio is going to be our Facebook page. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>